Would you please turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Isaiah? The book of Isaiah. We will be looking this morning at Isaiah chapter 9. It says in your bulletin, verses 1 through 9, that's a misprint. It's actually going to be verses 1 through 7. And while we will be looking through verses 1 through 7, our focus this morning will be particularly on verse 6. So we'll read verses 1 through 7 for the sake of context, and it will come into our understanding of verse 6. But our primary focus is going to be on those four titles, those four names uh, that are given to this child who is born in verse uh, 6. With that introduction out of the way, let us give attention now to the reading of God's holy inspired, infallible, and life-giving word. But there will be no gloom for, who, who, for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he, bar, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? Our Father in heaven, we come to this very familiar passage, this passage we all know well. But, O oh, Father, as is often the, time, uh, the case when we come to passages we know well, we, we sometimes turn off our ears thinking we know all. But, O oh, Lord, as we know, we can never mind the depths of your word. Not one verse in your scriptures can we ever plumb the depths of and get to the bottom. And so teach us new things here this morning through Isaiah 9, this glorious prophecy of the one who is to be born, who is the everlasting Father, mighty God, Prince of Peace, wonderful Counselor. Write your Son, this great man, upon our hearts by your Spirit, we pray, as we read and sit under your word preached and proclaimed. Do this, we pray, for we ask it. In the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. In Handel's Messiah, the piece that we all know very well, Unto Us a Child is Born, uh, as many of you know, is based on this text here in Isaiah chapter 9. 
And one of the things that I absolutely love about that piece that starts somewhat soft as the choir sings, don't worry, I'm not going to sing for you this morning, but as the choir sings for us, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall rest upon his shoulders and his name shall be. That's all very soft, but then in comes this sort of climactic punch, and the choir sings and shouts out the name of this child. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And really there, in the way Handel is writing his music there, he's actually showing a really good grasp of this passage. Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 5, there is this buildup. There is this anticipation building. Verse 2, you, you learn of this great light that will shine in the darkness. Verse 3, of an increased joy as God adds to the number of his, of his covenant children. And then you get to verse 4 and, and 5, the enemies are going to be destroyed. And then it, it builds up just a little bit more as you get to the beginning of verse 6 and you hear of this child that is going to be born. And then you get to that climactic punch. You can almost hear angels themselves singing as you get to that great climax of this passage. His name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. All the wonders and joy and victory for God and his people that has been building up in verses 1 through 5 will be realized through this child whose name will be awesome. In Hebrew, a name was much more than just a name as we think about, about it in contemporary society. Uh, it captured the person's character. It was what defined the person. It's what defined their conduct. It's what defined their, their purpose in life. And oh, what a name this child has. What a purpose in life this child has. Handel was right, wasn't he? This is a name we are to shout. This is a name that we are to sing with all our might. And what I want to do this morning is really just pretty simple. I just want to look at those four names that are given to Jesus of Nazareth here in verse 6. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. First, Wonderful Counselor. <clears throat> this word, wonderful, uh, as it is given in our English translations, is often shown to be an adjective but it literally is in the Hebrew actually a noun. Quite literally, this says a counselor of wonder. It is a word that is attached time and time again to, to God and his divine works that, that people, when they behold his divine activity, they, they behold him and they wonder at God and his mighty works. After God redeems Israel by parting the Red Sea and and redeeming Israel out of their bondage to, to Egypt and, and Pharaoh and, and causing the Israelites to walk on dry ground. Moses will say in Exodus 15, 11, who is like you, O Lord, among all the gods, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. The wisdom and counsel of Christ is something to wonder. 
Matthew 13, verse 54. The people in the synagogue were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and mighty works? It is a counsel. It is a wisdom that we are to wonder at, that we are to behold and marvel at, that is to astonish us as it astonished those men in the synagogue in Matthew 13. The wisdom and counsel of Christ does much more than just give us practical insight on how we are to live. It is something to marvel at. It is something to wonder at. Christ's counsel is not like the counsel of some wise counselor that you say, that advice was pretty good. I think I'm going to take that advice, I'm going to put it in my pocket and maybe use it for a later time with my friends or at work. I like that counselor, he gives me good advice. It's not like the kind of counsel we see so often today, which is really just meant to make us a better version of ourselves. No, it's a counsel to wonder at. It's a counsel to marvel at. It's the wisdom and counsel that Job met face to face when he saw God in the whirlwind in Job 38 through 41. And God takes him on a tour of the whole vast universe that God has not only created, but that he upholds and sustains by his power and orchestrates by his wisdom and by his counsel. And it causes Job to place his hand over his mouth and say, behold, I am insignificant. It's a counsel that places our hands over our foolish mouths. It is a pride-stripping counsel. It is a counsel that is to cause us to bow down before baby Jesus and worship him as the wise men do in Matthew 2. It's a counsel and wisdom of wonder. It's a high and lifted up beyond our full comprehension counsel. It's a counsel that we can only get a sliver of, only as God is pleased to reveal it to us. It is a counsel to wonder at. It is a counsel we are to lie prostrate before and give joy and thanksgiving. And as Handel would have us do, shout to this wonderful counselor, this counselor of wonder. So we see that this child to be born is a counselor of wonder. His wisdom, his counsel is like that counsel and wisdom that Job was met with. And it ought to cause us to fall to our knees, to place our hands over our mouths and worship Christ. Second, mighty God. He is to be mighty God. Now, it's interesting that in the very next chapter of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 21, Isaiah will say there in reference to Jehovah, to the God of Israel, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Yet here, almost effortlessly, Isaiah says that this child who is to be born in Galilee is mighty God. The child that Isaiah will speak of in chapter 7, verse 14, as being born of the virgin, is the mighty God. Christ is the strong, mighty God in the flesh, and the remnant of Israel that comes to him returns to mighty God. 
the majority of the time that this title is used of God in the Old Testament, it is used oftentimes in reference to God who fights for his people, a God who bloodies his hand, a warrior king, God who fights to save and redeem his people. Just think of John chapter 20. Thomas, the disciple Thomas, doesn't see the humiliated, weak Christ at the cross. But what does he get a vision of? He gets a vision of the strong and resurrected Christ. And he sees his battle wounds that he has taken on for his salvation. And he says, my Lord and my God. What is it that Thomas is getting a vision of there? He is getting a vision of the strong and mighty God in the flesh who fights for our salvation, who fought for the salvation of Thomas. He is the mighty God who fights for his people, who dies for his people, who rises for his people, who saves his people by his might and by his strength. Beloved, I ask you this morning, is Christ your mighty God who saves? Are you in a position today where your sin is weighing you down? Are you sort of saying to yourself, once I get all my ducks in a row, once I become a better husband, once I become a better wife, once I become a, a better sister, a better brother, a better, a better son, a better daughter, a better co-worker, then I'll come to Christ. But until I save myself by my own strength, I will not come to Christ. You see how deluded so often our thinking is? It sounds so pious, doesn't it? It sounds so holy. I need to better myself before I can come to the majestic and wondrous mighty God, Christ. But you see what it actually does is it blasphemes and soils the name of Christ who is mighty God, who alone is strong to save. Isaiah 9 tells us he comes in the midst of darkness. He doesn't come in the midst of partial light. He doesn't come in the midst of fading light that just needs a spark, a dwindling flame that just needs a couple more logs for that fire to be rekindled. No, he comes into that room that you haven't yet adjusted your eyes to, and you're tripping over the furniture and your children's toys. He comes into the midst of of a dark land shrouded in darkness and not just any darkness Isaiah says deep darkness and he comes as the mighty God of creation who said in the beginning let there be light the salvation of Christ much like the original creation is an ex nihilo salvation out of nothing salvation he doesn't come and say, you know, this is something I can work with. If I just tinker with this just a little bit, if I just tighten the screws over here, maybe, maybe I can save this person. No, he comes into the void of our sin and our dark hearts, and he says, let there be light. He comes into our weak condition, and he says, strong. He comes into our broken spirits and he says, be mended and wounded 
It is in Christ and Christ alone where salvation is found because he alone is mighty and strong to save. Brothers and sisters, do not look within yourself to try and save yourself. You will never find the strength. Wherever you find yourself today, whatever sin burdens you, whatever struggles weigh you down, run to Christ who alone is the mighty and strong God, who is strong to save. He is the mighty God. Third, he is everlasting Father. The word for Father, when it is used of the Lord, it often refers to his care for his people. Jeremiah 31, 9, with weeping they shall come, And with pleads for mercy, I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble, for I am a father to Israel. Jesus is one who cares for his people, who leads them in the path that they are to go. He is the shepherd who searches the one lost sheep, the one lost child, and brings them back to that straight and narrow path that he has blazed with his own sacrificial blood. With our littlest one, Brayden, there are many times where I'll be watching him because I know he's bound to get into trouble. He's one years old, and as one-year-olds do, he gets into a lot of trouble. And he goes into areas that I know he's going to get in trouble for. But sometimes all it takes for me is to just place my hand upon his back and just put slight pressure on his back and nudge him in the right direction. And he's just in that right direction. He says, okay, I'll go this way now. And he starts going in the right direction, just simply by a nudge, just simply by a small pressure on his back. Jesus is our Father who gives us constant nudges. Every day of our lives, every decision in our life, we can feel that pressure of Jesus' hand upon our back, nudging and tugging us back in that direction, that narrow path that he causes us to go as our shepherd who shepherds his sheep. When referred to the Lord, Father is also oftentimes referred to God's discipline for his people. Sometimes with Braden and Ben, a little nudge just won't do it. I'll put a little nudge, I'll put, I'll put that pressure on the back, but then I'll feel some pressure coming back onto my hand. And he won't go willingly. He won't say, okay, I'll go this way, because he wants what he can't have. And so he throws a temper tantrum. He screams, he cries, and there has to be consequences. There has to be discipline. Jesus is our Father who sometimes tugs and nudges over and over, but we just are so stubborn in our sin, aren't we? That we fail to turn to that, to that narrow way that he wants us to go. And so he must discipline us as any good father does. He makes us feel the weight of that grand and wide path that leads to hell. He makes us feel the consequences of that sin so that we will not find full satisfaction in it. He disciplines us as a father when those nudges, those small little pressure points on the back just won't do. 
so that we will walk in the way of our shepherd, of our father. And this fatherhood, unlike mine for my children, as we see here, is an everlasting one. His care and his discipline, his nudges and his tugs are meant for our eternal welfare. He is our everlasting father. A good father nudges and disciplines in many ways so that that child will will be a good citizen in their community, will be a good citizen in the country that they were born in. The everlasting father, Jesus Christ, nudges and disciplines so that we might be good citizens in the everlasting community, in the heavenly country that he has won for us in his blood. He is an everlasting father to his everlasting children who become light by being wrapped up into his light through faith. And we, like our everlasting father, become everlasting. And he nudges and he disciplines so that we might live well in the kingdom of God that he brings with his coming. He is an everlasting father. Fourth and finally, he is the prince of peace. He is the prince of peace. This child who is born is referred to as a prince. You know, it's interesting that oftentimes the kings of Israel are often in the Old Testament referred to as princes. Second Samuel 6, David says to his wife, Michal, the daughter of Saul, The Lord chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. The word carries with it the idea that God is the sovereign king over his people Israel, and the king of Israel is his prince who administers the rule and law of Jehovah over his people. Think of Jesus' words in John chapter 5, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own accord. I judge according to what I hear, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. Jesus Christ is the prince. He is the administer for Jehovah. He administers his law and his goodness for his people over his people's lives. And what is it that we see here in this title that Jesus Christ as prince administers on behalf of Jehovah, God the Father? He administers peace. He is the prince of peace. But this peace that he administers is really very different than the kind of peace that we often think of today. When we think of peace today, especially in today's culture, what we often think about is an absence of war, an absence of of hostilities between two parties. And certainly that is involved in in the peace that Christ brings. Through his blood, he sets the wrath of God aside. The warfare and enmity between God and those who are covered in Christ's blood is is over. So certainly we can say that the peace he brings is the cessation of war between God's people and God as they are covered in the blood of Christ that makes atonement for sin that covers us in his sight. 
However, there is much more to this word peace, which is the Hebrew word shalom, than simply a cessation of war, an absence of hostilities. Its most primary meaning is to make complete, to make whole. It's a word that captures full restoration. It's the taking of two things that are at disharmony with one another and moving them toward each other in harmony and in union and communion with each other. What Christ brings is not merely a relinquishing of arms where we wave to God and go our separate ways and say, let bygones be bygones. No, he brings union and communion and harmony and fellowship with the living God, no longer as subjects of his wrath, but now as children to a loving father. He brings shalom. He brings peace. He brings a restored relationship with creation itself. Just think of Genesis 3 and and that part of the curse in Genesis 3. What is it that God says? Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. But at the end of Isaiah, in Isaiah 65, he gives us a vision of that that new heavens and that, that new earth that Christ, the Prince of Peace, will bring. And what is it that we read? Verse 21, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. My chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. The Prince of Peace will bring shalom between us and the ground, between us and creation. He will restore relationship between us, between man and creation that is fallen due to sin. He will restore relationship between each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. As we we are united with each other in Christ, he becomes that focal point, that center point. We no longer look at each other. We look at each other through the lens of Christ. That dividing wall between Gentile and Jew is broken. They don't just simply go their separate ways and just promise to not say anything bad about each other. They come and they congregate in the same churches. They worship together. They cry over each other's shoulders. The disharmony is brought in to harmony. Shalom is what Christ brings. In the year 1914, as World War I was raging on, during the Christmas season of that year, there was what has since been called a Christmas truce where the Germans, the French, and the British decided to put down their arms for a time during the Christmas season in the month of December. They allowed the oppositions to go out and retrieve some dead soldiers so that they could bury them, and there was an absence of hostilities. There was what you might say that kind of peace that we think of today, an absence of war for a time. But then on Christmas Day... German, French, and British soldiers came out of their trenches and met together in what was called no man's land. They sang carols, exchanged gifts, and played games with one another. 
for a brief moment, disharmony was brought into harmony. Enemies were made friends. Isaiah 65, verse 25. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat the straw like the ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace, who upon his resurrection says to his disciples and says to all of us, peace, completeness, wholeness, full restoration, harmony be with you all. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you for Jesus Christ, who is our counselor of wonder, whose wonder, who we wonder at, whose wisdom and counsel is divine, who is the mighty God who is strong to save and is pleased to use his might and his strength to save us sinners. We thank you for Jesus Christ, who is the everlasting Father, who always places his hand upon our back, who is with us every step of the way, making absolutely sure that we will persevere in the storms of this fallen world and make our way to our heavenly home. We thank you, O oh God, that Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace the one who administers your shalom that you promised as we saw a few weeks back in Genesis 3.15. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in this infant and helpless babe, born in a manger, born of the virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit. We can do nothing but just simply thank you and marvel at and wonder at the incarnation, the fact that God has not only become man, but he has become an infant for us. We praise you and we thank you for this good news. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Would you please stand for our closing hymn, O Come All Ye Faithful. I'm sorry, what child is this?